John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 466.ps3302 certificate number 30784 the 59 les paul standard So, one of the things that surprised me when I first met you a long time ago, now seems like like an era ago. It was, for our listeners. It was a, a different geological era. Right. Um, oh, one of the things that surprised me was that you are a tremendous fan of rock and roll. Your, your knowledge of esoterica is why you're famous, but you also are a real avid consumer of, of media across all spectra. I love the rock. I love the roll. You do? You like boogie and woogie? We have both kinds, country and western. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother is the real kind of music head who can name all the session musicians on every record and knows which is the rare Japanese import and reads a lot of rock criticism. But I kind of absorbed that from his passion about whatever the new band was. But you love indie rock. You can name most of the indie rock bands. You listen. You even listen to The Long Winters. I listen to your band, mm-hmm. The Long Winters, one of my favorites. That's nice. Um, you know, because I know you. I have to. Yeah, right. No, you don't have to. It would be awkward. I don't care if people listen to my Okay, you're a huge fan of indie rock, <laughs> except for the Long Winters. I dated a girl that had, she loved indie rock music, and I was like, you know, I'm in a indie rock band. It's kind of pretty popular. And she was like, yeah. <laughs> and then we went out for years, and she never gave, I wrote an entire album about her, and she never gave me props. Never. Her interests include much, but not all indie rock. <laughs> she was like, I really love this new Cat Power record. And I was like, I have a new record, too. That's about you. What Not if you just started telling her you were a different rock star? Would you would she have fallen for that? No, I don't think she was pretty savvy. Um, but your knowledge and love of rock and roll, I'm guessing, does not extend all the way to knowing how the sausage gets made. I mean, how much interest do you have in the recording process, in the the gear? You know, there's a lot of gear associated with making rock music. Like there are, I mean, people love to talk about tools. How much of that interests? I almost, I know almost nothing about the gear. Like when I hear a sound on a record, I I will think about like what other records it reminds me of. Oh, you know who does this other kind of reverby vocals or, or it'll, um, 
or just the emotion of it. Like, I just love that kind of dreamy sound you get when a guitar sounds like this. But I realized the world is full of people who would be like, yeah, Ken, that's, here's what pedal that is. Right. And I just have no idea because I think maybe you have to have had some high school experience with your band in a basement to, to get to that point. <laughs> Otherwise, where am I going to, am I going to go to some guitar center and like have some guy walk me through gear and pedals? Like, I don't even know how to get this knowledge, John. Help me. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Well, what's, what's cool about musical equipment is that uh, there are a lot of disciplines that have specialized equipment and people that are fascinated by that equipment, right? I mean, if you are a hot rod car builder, you have the special tools, the special paint, you're adding this carburetor to this block and we're porting this injection. And, and, and it's, a, it's a world where people can quantify performance, it's also kind of a shibboleth for insider status, right? If you right. can, and because often the names are fun to say, like, uh, yes, I'm an artist who uses a Windsor and Newton number, whatever ink brush, you know, the, the, all that kind of mastery that comes with knowing the brand names and which are the cool ones and which have gotten worse quality since they started making them in Pakistan and, you know, all this stuff, right? Yeah. And it becomes a shorthand you can use with other artists that are also skilled, um, as you're kind of trading tips, but you're, you're, it's also a shibboleth, right? As you say, and for people who want to, who aspire to practice those arts, it feels like a magic language. Um, right. Cause that's what you want to know. You're like, well, what kind of, what kind of bass does he play? Or this is amazing. Like what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of brush do you use to get this line? Or the idea is that the tools, the illusion that the amateur has is that the tools will help me approach the mastery. Right. And this is especially true in music um, because music is very mathematical. It's very technical. It's, you can quantify it. You can, in, in fact, in digital recording, you can look and see every single waveform of everything you do. And it's very... That's how many future listeners are enjoying our podcast. They're, they're just looking at a waveform on well, they, screen. They may, be, they may be feeling it tactily. You know, our future listeners may have uh, limbs that are actually record, uh, like needles of a record player. They have a stylus on yeah. every finger. And they're just like dragging it across across the, the platinum disc on on the Voyager, just like singing our song. It's, it's humming and resonating with them beautiful. But what what's frustrating about music is that for all the ability we have to reduce it down to notes or waveforms, mm -hmm. it is so intangible what makes music appealing. You can have two guitar players playing identical instruments and identical tunes, but one will have a different feel. And the feel is the thing that communicates the emotion that's in music. And there's no uh, notation for that. Right? No, no, you can, and, and no there, equation, no way to say, play the solo more like this. You can, you can use words to describe it, but you're immediately into metaphor at that mm. point. You're like, can you play it more blue? Can you play it more orange? And if you're, if you're, Wait, are they all colors? Not necessarily, right? It's like, can you, you'll talk to singers and say like, sing from behind your eyeballs. I mean, it's all <laughs> like a very, uh, we're working with so much handicap in trying to explain and describe the emotional element. It's of funny music. that we've all kind of agreed on whatever that feeling is. It feels like you're singing behind your eyeballs or, yeah. or, or it seems like the color orange. And this is how you try and communicate with other musicians that are working, you know, that are, that are very proficient in their craft. You don't have to tell them like, put a little bit more vibrato on the note. Like they know to do that. 
but to try and elicit a performance from them, you do have to work in the, in this other much more colorful language, like, and, and, and you try to, to conjure up, uh, states of feeling like play as though you just lost a child, you know, like, wait, I mean, wait, really? You wouldn't <laughs> like, do is that, that. Is that maybe the kind of somebody? thing a producer would say? But, uh, you know, like jazz musicians, you often say like, try and emulate this player or that player. Ah, right. Uh, with rock and roll, it's very it's much emulate this drug or that drug or em, emulate like this feeling or that feeling. Like we're trying to make a, like I, I recorded a song one time on a record, um, where the, the tone I was going with, the song is called Mimi. And the tone I was going for was all of the ghosts in a Confederate graveyard all rose up at once and are walking slowly through the mist to you who are standing behind a locked gate. Does anything in the lyric convey this, or is this just supposed to Not be? Not at a... all. This is what I was trying. This is what I said to the producer, and I, I feel like we really succeeded in that track in, in communicating that feeling. But, but the elusive, um, the place where equipment and tone collide or intersect is this magic place in music. And as you say, there are special pedals that are very expensive that create certain tones. There are guitar players who will insist that this pedal performs better if you put a battery in it that is almost out of power. So that having a battery that's running out of juice will cause the machine to create a different sound. I mean, there, there are guitar players that swear by this, that will keep like used up batteries around for special applications. It's going to be hard for a live performance, right? Well, no, not if you have a, not if you're hiring people to do this work for you. So when people are running off and on stage, when you see roadies running off and on stage with guitars, maybe they're swapping out mm. batteries as well. I think it's it's all pretty systematized in, in big operations, but there is a lot of magical incantation. By the way, I'm looking at um, performance directions from the classical composer Eric Satie, mm -hmm. and he would put instructions to his players that would say things like, play like you've had too much wine to drink. Yes. So it actually says that on the score you give to the orchestra. Well, In, uh, in rock, you would actually give the player too much wine to drink. You wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't ask them to simulate it, right? Brian Eno famously uh, came up with a series of cards called Oblique Strategies. And Oblique Strategies, I actually have a set of Oblique Strategies that a, that a friend of mine made many years ago where she took a, a whole pack of three by five cards and hand-typed uh, an Oblique Strategy per card. And the Oblique Strategies were just suggestions to use in the recording studio. Like you'd pull out a card and it would say, State the problem in words as clearly as possible. That's not that one's not that oblique. Well, that one's more of an overt strategy. But if you're trying to if you're trying to capture a great guitar take, mm. that is fairly oblique, right? Or a card would say, "Try faking it," you know. And and, and the goal was to pull a card out and have when you had reached an intractable problem, mm -hmm. pull a card out and then follow the instructions to the best of your ability. And that would be a way of solving. Reframe the situation. Just reframe it, right. Work at a different speed. 
I can't believe he never named a Roxy Music record Oblique Strategy. It does seem like so. But, you know, he's not he's not out of ideas that he needs to recycle his good ideas over and over. He just comes up with another new idea. I would just do that with Cards Against Humanity. I'd be in the <laughs> studio and I'd pull out a thing and it says, like, the Armenian Genocide. <laughs> Lol. Or... Your, your mom's Facebook profile. That's, that's how I would uh, record my record. Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing that record. Yeah. Well, uh, you know what? If you'll pay me, I'll produce it. <laughs> um, the history of recorded music is actually pretty recent, right? Until, until into the 20th century, the whole music business was still confined to selling sheet music. There wasn't a That's where the there. money was, that's right? right? And it was really... Until after World War II, the majority of, I mean, popular music was largely orchestral. I'm kind of sad now thinking about that was a world where pretty much everybody could play an instrument. So you could sell a million copies of Tell Your Mother I Love You, Catherine, or whatever the, the big hit is, and it will sell a million copies because everybody will play it on the spin it in the parlor yeah, you'd and the pianola in the, in the bar room. And you'd hear it coming out of houses as you walked down the lane, but it was everybody sitting learning the song on their piano. But at least everybody could play an instrument. There That's was, amazing. There was so little else to do. <laughs> everybody did know how to play the piano. Um, but after World War II, as um, big bands had gotten bigger and bigger and guitar players, you know, there's a, there's often a guitar within a big band. Is that what ended the big band era? They just got too big. It looks like a, they collapsed like a neutron star. No, this no. band is so big. It now contains every resident of St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> then you go to, can no longer see the furthest players. The entire city of Kalamazoo is arraying itself across the football <laughs> field to play. I got a gal in Kalamazoo. <laughs> no, as bands got bigger, right? The, the guitar players, like a piano is a very percussive instrument. Horns are naturally loud. Mm -hmm. Drums are loud. Uh, guitars, uh, acoustic guitar, -dink 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 can't really keep up. Right. And a, an acoustic guitar is a rhythm instrument, even though it's making chords and complicated chords, but it's meant to augment the the drums as a kind of like, you know, it's creating a shaker. But that was all effect. getting drowned out. Drowned out. And so people were, had devised ways of electrifying guitars, putting. Uh, I would just put pickups. one acoustic guitarist at each table in the nightclub. Distribute the guitarist. So that, it's, it's quieter, but it's closer to your girlfriend's ear. That would be a great idea, except one of the things that's uh, intriguing about music is that, and this is less true in rock and roll because we incorporated dissonance into the sound of rock music, like mm. because there are so many bad musicians in rock that if somebody doesn't know how to play a guitar solo, he just throws the guitar down the stairs and we're like, that's ingenious part. But in Oblique strategies, but in throw jazz, the guitar down the stairs. If you have five guitar players and one of them is not very good, it's really going to stand out like a sore thumb. That's mm. why uh, I was talking about this with somebody the other day. Like within, within choirs, choirs are very hierarchical. You don't just join a high-level choir and you don't just join a high-level orchestra. Um, you got to pay your dues. You have to pay your dues. And that's because if you have 50 people on stage singing and one person is a microtone off the whole thing is wrecked. It sounds like garbage. And so, although there are a lot of ways we can, a lot of ways you can practice the sort of everyone's an artist philosophy of the late 20th century. It does not work in vocal music. It does not work in, vocal, <laughs> in like high level vocal music or like you can't sit in first violin and say, everyone's an artist. It's like, no, either you are really good or not. Did you see that Academy Award winning short from, I think, Romania about a mean choir teacher that wants to win so much that she tells the new girls to just lip sync? 
during the big choir contest. Oh, I didn't see so that. So it's a very heartbreaking thing. But yeah, it's definitely on the side of everyone's an artist. Well, look, there are lots of people out there who are lip syncing at events like that. I, w- I went to the Conference on World Affairs one time in Colorado. And the speakers were lip syncing? No, but there was a, I was invited as a musician. Although when I got there, I realized all the other musicians were 70 years old and they were all jazz musicians because Conference on World Affairs skews a little bit older, but I wanted to be there to talk about politics and, and culture and history, which is another track. And I, I was put on those panels, but I had to do something at the big music performance because that was what I was there to do. And I went up to the director of the thing and I was like, Hey man, I don't know. I'm not a jazz player. And I, you guys are all like improvising and it's super hip. I can't really hang. And he was like, don't worry about it. You know, we'll do something. We'll do just like a simple blues while you're up there and you could just blues it out. And I was like, okay, I can blues it out. You know, no problem. So I walk out, they hand me a guitar, the band, you know, there's 40 people on stage and they're all just like, (laughs) and the guy kind of turns to the, and he's like, all right, you know, blues in E, watch me for the changes. And I'm, I'm ready to like blues it out. And the band's like, and I'm like, what? This is not blues in E, this is jazz. And from their standpoint, it was just some simple little thing that I should have been able to jump into. And so what I did was I turned the volume on my guitar all the way down and I sat up there and just played the, just absolutely played it like my life depended on it. Were you really hamming it up? Oh yeah, I was making the neck in the air. I was just like, come on. I was getting all into it. And my guitar is making zero sound. (laughs) And he turned at one point during the concert and looked over at me and gave me like a, like a look of like, what? Are you doing? Because you know the musicians could, could tell. tell there's nothing happening, but the audience was completely dumb because there there's so much music getting made on that stage. But and, and I pulled it off, although I didn't get invited back to the conference <laughs> on world affairs. So maybe I didn't pull it off. The orchestra leader told on you. My son's in marching band now at his high school, and one thing he told me is that uh, when you see a marching band, at least at the high school level, marching across the field at halftime none of the new kids are actually playing their instruments. Like they are just thinking about their feet because they've got to learn all these formations and now we're going to make a circle and now you guys all have to weave into this cross. And so all the new kids are just kind of like holding their trumpets or whatever at their mouths and not playing at all because they're just thinking three, four, five, left, two, three, four. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true in an actual good college band. But. Yeah, but, but in an elementary school band for sure. Uh, so immediately after the war, there's a lot going on, right? Uh, this is a, an incredible time. Like we're at this dawn of jet travel. We've invented nuclear weapons. We've invented youth culture. Yep. Uh, uh, and the, the teenager now exists. And there are a lot of new styles of music mm-hmm. that are becoming popular country and Western music, blues music, and the desire to have guitars that were loud enough to be heard over an orchestra had kind of pushed people to develop these different ideas of pickups to fit into, um, pickups is a little, a little, essentially it's a microphone, a little microphone that's somewhere in the guitar that then can go through a cable to a little amplifier. But a lot of servicemen were in Hawaii during the war and Hawaiian music had incorporated the lap steel guitar. It's somebody like what, moving a glass, like a glass bottle on a string. So it gives you that Hawaiian. Yeah. There there aren't, uh, there are no frets, which are little, uh, you know, metal wire the, that the ridges on the, yeah, that give you kind of an area where you can make the note and it won't be flat. Like on, on a violin or a cello, 
your intonation, your the pitch of the note is determined by your finger placement alone. And you can be sharp or flat by very small amounts just based on where you are fingering on the on the fretboard or on the fingerboard rather. On a guitar, it has these these the metal wires across the across the neck. Finger goes here. And anywhere in between those wires, if you push down, it will be the wire that bridges the string. Ah, I see. So and as long so, as your finger is somewhere in that range, you get the exact same tone. Right. Or you get, yeah, no, it's not exactly the same, but but you you can maintain, if your guitar is properly intonated, it will be in tune as long as you're playing, you know, making chords within these frets. Um, it does not give you the ability to make micro tones, micro- Like half tones. Microtunal and- uh, notes, but you don't want that in a rock band or on a guitar. But in Hawaii, it, so the the pedal steel or the lap steel, uh, it doesn't have frets. You're moving a bar, either a bottle or a metal bar, up and down the strings, and that's what gives that Hawaiian or Hawaiian music, and and also that is a popular instrument in country and western. I did a very bad impression, but I want you to do a better impression. Oh, mine wasn't so bad. It's you have uh, the capacity to play a note anywhere along. And you can bend those notes. You can bend them and, and, and there's that kind of a slurring warbly quality to the music. It was popularized in Hawaii because the early Portuguese sailors arrived in Hawaii and brought the, the guitar and ukulele with them. And today it's still one of my favorite things. I would like any song if it has pedal steel guitar, like I'm, I'm just a sucker for it. And a pedal steel, actually the pedals in the name uh, refer to actual foot pedals and pedals you operate with your knee that pull the strings sharp and flat. Oh, that's what you're doing. You're, so you're so, changing the tension on the string with your knee. Yeah. So wow. that what because because as you're making as you're running this bar across five or six strings on a steel, you can only make the chords that the thing is tuned to open. But if you pull or slacken various strings across the guitar, you can change the chord beneath your bar. So that you'll hear really great pedal steel players, you know, they're playing every chord within the, within the composition, but they're playing it across a flat bar rather than fingering it with five different fingers, which is what a typical human has these days. That's what guitars are made to be. Their guitars are made to be played by five fingers. Uh, listeners are going to think that's hopelessly primitive. <laughs> it is. But okay. They're all playing sitars, you know, but, but, but fretted sitars. But if they listen to some great pedal steel song, you know, if they listen to Running on Empty or Tiny Dancer or something, you, you'll understand. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can 
get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Now, what's amazing about the electric guitar is that a guy named Leo Fender, uh, that a lot of people have probably heard uh, his name because Fender guitars are namesake guitar company. Still, uh, still among the greatest guitars. Leo Fender had a kind of a radio shop in Fullerton, California, and he would he had been working on pickups. He'd been designing pickups for different guitars, and as he was kind of testing pickups, he built a little solid wood pickup tester guitar, not meant to be played with live, but just he would put different pickups in it and it was strung up. And just um, so I understand here, at this point, there was no such thing as a solid body guitar. All guitars were hollow body back from their acoustic days when you needed that resonance. Yeah, were acoustic guitars that had been that had been augmented with a pickup. Okay, so this uh, was new that... And there were several attempts to make solid body guitars because lap steels are solid. They were often made of Bakelite. Uh, a couple of different companies have, you know, lay claim to have maybe made a prototype of a of a solid body guitar, Rickenbacker. Is that for sound quality or just because it's a more compact thing? Uh, well, it, it was all sort of evolving simultaneously. There was the amplifiers weren't really that big. It wasn't, but but also there wasn't a style of music to utilize yet. Right. Uh, to utilize this tool. Um, so it's chicken and the egg. Like rock doesn't exist because you don't have electric guitars. Electric guitars don't exist because you don't have rock. Right. And and in Fullerton, it was kind of these 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 were big country and western days. And players would come in to Fender's shop to you know to trade out their pickups, and they would see this little tester he had and listen to it, and it had a really bright penetrating sound. So it did have a different sound quality. A completely different sound quality. Uh, the, you know, a, a, an acoustic hollow guitar has a lot of resonance and warmth. Yeah. But if you think about country and Western, it really, uh, the sound we think of as country and Western now has a very trebly kind of, very precise. Right. Um, and so they loved this little tester he had and people started asking him if they could borrow it for their show. Ah. At which point he realized, oh, this is a thing. And he started to kind of mock up a design for what a solid body guitar would be. I wonder if it fits in country because it, it's similar to the kind of plink plink of a banjo getting plucked, you know, like it's kind of of a piece with that. It absolutely is. And, and, um, and you, with that plinkety plink, you can put a little bit of reverb on it and it sounds, um, you get what's called a little bit of a slap back feeling where you hit the pink and, and within the reverb, of the room, even before there was artificial the reverb, reverb pedal, right? Yeah, it would. The sound would go to the back of the hall and come back, so it'd be like, bing, 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 bing. And you bing. would never hear that with an acoustic guitar because it just doesn't have that kind of that kind of impact, that piercing quality. Yeah, it would. You know, it's an acoustic guitar is, is just too. It's just too warm. Hmm. So, Leo Fender, in one of the like supreme acts of creation sits in his workshop and he builds the prototype of what is the first electric guitar effectively, the first mass produced electric guitar, which he first called the broadcaster. Nice. 
Uh, but he got sued by another instrument company, Gretsch, who said, we already own the copyright to Broadcaster. He called it the Esquire for a while. Mm. Um, there was a while there where after he got sued, he had to take the name Broadcaster off of the guitar, but he hadn't come up with a new name. So for a while, they manufactured this guitar, and, and we call it now the No-Caster, because it just had no name on it. It just said Fender. Not allowed to market it as anything. And eventually he settled on the word Telecaster. It's funny how they really emphasize kind of the futuristicness of it. Like it sounds like a Tomorrowland Jetsons kind of a thing. It's, it's space and radio and all that. It really is. Like Telecaster is, a, is their idea of like, it's the future. And later Strato literally means like, you know, the edge of space. Like we want you to think like the music of tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, whoa, 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 whoa. But the Telecaster is, it's one of the, the rare moments in time where someone made a thing perfectly the first try. That's literally never happened to me. Uh, it, it, it has never really happened to me either. But no, no offense to my children <laughs> who are fine. Yeah, my, my daughter is perfect if you asked her. <laughs> one out of one elementary school children surveyed say, but, but the, the, so the Telecaster is just a great instrument. So the Telecaster had a lot of advantages over every other uh, guitar up to that point. The neck was not glued in, but was bolted on or screwed in. So which gives you what, what it allows you to do is, I mean, one of the things that happens with a guitar, uh, is that it breaks. I mean, if a guitar falls over, there are a lot of, a guitar is under tension. Right. And it's very common for the neck to break. The headstock will break off. The, the neck will break at where it joins the body. And with a Telecaster, if you have any problem with your neck, you just take it off, put another one on. Uh, it screws on and off, but also it's incredibly easy to manufacture. Um, sure, it's interchangeable parts. Interchangeable parts. And it was, it, he designed it to be mass produced. And so the the body was just a, slab of wood. The neck was a slab of wood. They were joined together instead of, um, with the, with electrified acoustic guitars, you have to put the, all the electronic stuff, you have to put it in through those little F holes or through the circular hole. Yeah. And this was a body that you could route out with a machine. Does this mean that, um, electric guitars essentially become one of the most affordable instruments? It's less of an artisanal thing that you have to get from a craftsman and more of a mass produced like, is this, is this what helps put rock over? Is that it's affordable to go down and buy one of these? It's always been part of the guitar business to try and figure out exactly how to price guitars because you want it to be affordable. You want this to be a popular, you know. Something a, kids can take up. Right, but also they're not cheap to make. I mean, wood is wood has always been expensive, and as time has gone on, wood has gotten like the, the wood that you want to use to make electric guitars has gotten more and more expensive. That's so interesting to me, that, that whole thing that, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, that you can actually hear the different woods, the different types of wood, the different qualities of wood in, the, in a note or a chord. Well, this is part of the magic that we were talking about earlier. There are plenty of records on the radio right now where the guitar parts are played on an instrument made out of particle board for all intents and purposes because we have developed electronic modeling so that you can make pretty bad guitar parts sound like they're played by the greatest instruments ever made. Can you tell though? Can the trained ear tell? Well, m music recording has changed so much over the last decade that 
your ear is, if, if you are a trained musician, if you've spent years and years thinking about this stuff, your ear is so befuddled by what you're hearing in recorded music now, it doesn't know where to start. Mm. Because everything in a recording now has been chemically processed to the point where uh, what is it emulating? Sure. Like every change now is on the table. Everything's yep. a variable now. But in the early days of, of electric music, they were, they were building instruments that, that had yet to be, it had yet to be discovered what they were really going to do. I mean, the, the initial Telecaster did not, un, did not realize it was creating rock and roll. It These were, just, yeah, we've talked about this before. These are just mid-century guys tinkering yeah. just to see what they'll make. Let's see. Maybe these country guys will play this instead of the banjo. But there was, uh, in this popularization, this explosion of interest in electric guitars. And they started to be used by uh, initially by people that were already professional guitar players. But now you could buy it. Now you could experiment with it. You could learn guitar. It was a lot smaller instrument than a parlor piano to carry with you everywhere. Sure. And also people had record players in their homes. They were listening to recorded music. It was a popular form of entertainment and you could listen to records and learn them on the guitar. This gives birth to the era of the annoying guy showing up at the party and playing Wonderwall. Right. Because it's portable. Ugh, ugh, Wonderwall of all things. But the Telecaster was a perfect instrument. And as evidence of that, it has never gone out of production. And Bruce Springsteen plays one, and they're still in use by contemporary art artists. Are they um, effectively the same, or is it like a car where each year has different modifications and fins and uh, improvements? In the case of the Telecaster, every improvement that was made was, you know, eventually like the, there are some of the Telecasters that became separate instruments, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, Telecasters with different styles of pickups, but you can go into a music store right now and buy a 1952 Telecaster made to the specifications of 1952. That's fascinating. Now there's not that same quality of wood available. So there are compromises at every stage. I mean, the pickups are made in China instead of hand wound by uh, Leo Fender, but yeah, the fact that he died in the nineties probably makes that a little harder. Yeah. He's, he can't really hand wire them. Although pickups that were made by him now are ex very expensive on a secondary market. Ah, interesting. Like the idea there's a ghost in the machine still, like his fingers were there. Right. But Leo was thinking, uh, like a lot of mid-century guys, like the future, the future, like we, we made the Telecaster, now we're going to make the Stratocaster, which is even better. It has three pickups instead of two, and it looks even more futuristic. Where are the pickups, by the way? Pretend I know nothing about guitar. Okay, so anatomy. pickups are little magnets that pick up the resonation of the string. They, as They can sense some kind of electromagnetic, or is it a physical vibration? Uh, well, it's a because the strings are metal, the magnets are wrapped in copper wire and they pick up the electromagnetic vibration mm -hmm. of the string and, and run it in through a wire to uh, the, the amplifier, which broadcasts it. Okay. So the, some field is actually moving. Okay. That makes and, sense. And every aspect of this, uh, this little signal chain matters in terms of what sound comes out of the speaker what kind of strings you're using, what wood the neck is made of, what wood the body's made of, what how the pickups are built. Are the pickups on the body of the guitar? So if you look at a guitar, you look at the neck and it goes all the way, then you have the big body of it. Yeah. And in most electric guitars, you'll see 
between one and three uh, metal bars. That, oh, they're, they're all in the same place. It's not like they're picking up vibrations from different parts of the instrument. Well, they're not necessarily, they're not in, in exactly the same place. A typical electric guitar, like the Telecaster, has two pickups in it. And one of them is very close to the neck, where the neck joins the body. And one of them is back where the strings connect to the body gotcha. at the bridge. And the one that's closer to the neck has a warmer sound. The one that's closer to the bridge has a has a uh, sharper sound. And is that a balance the player can control on his, his or her amp or, or instrument? So that's what all the knobs and switches on a guitar do. You can play just the neck pickup. You can play both pickups together and just the body pickup, just the bridge pickup. And then there's also a tone knob and a volume knob. You need the volume knob for when you're playing with a jazz combo and the, enter out of your left. Well, and you, and if you're, if you're comping chords behind the band, you turn your volume down to dank, dink, dank, dink. And then when it's like, take a lead, you whip that volume knob up and you're like, which is what all guitar solos sound like. It's fun. It combines like the craftsmanship of, you know, a harpist or a lyrist from thousands of years ago with being able to actually tinker with buttons and knobs like right. a space age boy with a shortwave radio. But it's very mechanical and it's very natural. It's very, I mean, these are simple, simple tools. It's a, it's, there, there's six strings. There are effectively two octaves on a neck of a guitar. Mm -hmm. There are these two pickups and you have, in the case of a Telecaster, a volume and a tone knob and a pickup selector switch. Um, so this guitar was very popular. The Stratocaster that came after it was also very popular. Uh, Stratocaster made uh, popular by Buddy Holly. Yes. But uh, Fender's main competitor in the guitar world, and this remains true to this day, just as in auto manufacturing, we have Ford and General Motors, and then you could argue Chrysler ended up winning the competition between about 10 to 15 other car manufacturers that didn't survive. For, for the bronze medal? Um, but in guitar, there are Fender and Gibson, and then... Uh, a dozen other American makes that either got gobbled up or kind of were fighting for bronze. Fender and Gibson are the big two. Fender and Gibson are the big two. Uh, and, and Fender came out of nowhere, right? Uh, Gibson Guitar Company had been in business for many, many years, making big arch top, hollow body jazz guitars. They were the premier uh, guitar maker. And now they've got to chase this new This guy technology. out in Fullerton with a, with a short sleeve shirt with a pocket protector in it is making these electric guitars and selling them like hotcakes. And so Gibson needed a guitar that could compete in the market. And so they went to a man by the name of Les Paul. And I know from looking at your record collection that you have a lot of Les Paul and Mary Ford records. <laughs> Les Paul and his wife, Mary Ford, were popular, uh, popular record makers in the forties and fifties. And they were, and Les Paul was a tinkerer himself. He'd actually come to Gibson many years before with a prototype of a solid body guitar and they'd rejected him. Um, he was one of the, is it on the strength of that, that we sometimes think of Les Paul as the inventor of the electric guitar, even though Gibson ended up chasing Leo Fender? Uh, we do. And we think of Les Paul as the inventor of multi-track recording. Mm. He was a classic American tinkerer, but he was also a phenomenal guitar player and, a composer and his wife, Mary Ford was a great singer. And so he was 
He was producing these records at the time that sounded incredibly novel and sold millions of copies. Uh, and some of the novelty was that he was making all this music by himself because he had invented multi-tracking instead of needing an orchestra in a, in a studio, just all playing into one microphone. So he was playing every instrument essentially. Yeah. Or he was like doubling and tripling his vocals and his parts and playing all these different parts by himself. He didn't have an orchestra, the Les Paul orchestra. So Gibson went to him and said, Hey, remember that idea? We're working on one now. Would you mind if we consulted you? Would you mind if we put your name on it? Cause his name had some credibility. He was a, yeah, it was a celebrity endorsement of a, of a real musician. It was like the air Jordans of its time. Ah. Um, and in the same way that we say like, Oh, nice Jordans. Now it's easy to forget that that's referring to an actual person. Les Paul is the same. We talk about Les Pauls, Les Pauls, Les Pauls. That's, a, that's this guy. It's kind of Les sad Paul. that his music is kind of forgotten in comparison to his, uh, his eventual gift to instrument making. Yeah. Although there are a lot of musicians of that era whose music is forgotten and we don't say their name <laughs> 500 million times a day. I think we should have more Paul, not less. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Waka waka. That's why you're the funny one on this show. Uh, so Gibson was developing a guitar and they went a different direction from Fender. They did not want a bolt on neck because what you get with a bolt on neck, although it's ease of manufacture, you don't get a lot of the sustain that you get when a neck is glued into a body. You know, a, a glued in neck creates a kind of single wood organism. This is a separate piece that stops vibrating sooner than everything else. Right. And, and so Gibson wanted a, a set neck. They didn't just flat band saw the wood. They wanted it to have a kind of curved hand carved top. They were making a premier instrument, a, a more expensive instrument. It's a luxury good. A luxury good. And uh, so they debuted the Les Paul guitar, which was also a success initially. Uh, the price point was quite a bit higher than the Telecaster, but it was meant to be played by jazz musicians. There was no, they weren't competing with the country and Western guitar players of Leo Fender. They were providing a service to the Charlie Christians of the world. Uh, and their initial, the initial Les Paul was painted gold as a way of describing like how, uh, what a fine item it was. It, they were, they were very literalist then they were like, we'll paint it gold. People will know it's, this is a choice thing. And this is, this is new. You know, the, our, our modern thing where guitars can be any kind of flashy, splashy color did not exist. Guitars just looked like wood at the time. Well, and Fender very shortly then started to debut kind of custom colors, like, like in the style of, custom cars. Uh, again, right. part of his like futurism, this Fen is, you could get fenders in red and this is for sure coming from car culture, right? Yeah, Cause yeah, it's yeah. the same kind of shiny chromey paint and the same appeal. Yeah. California. Exactly. Uh, so Les Pauls were gold initially and they were, they had a maple top, which uh, was like a little piece of wood sort of grafted onto the top of a mahogany body. Mahogany's and, dense, so it's it's good for that. But, what does the maple do? But heavy. What the maple did was give brightness to the tone. Um, you couldn't make a guitar out of solid maple; that would have been too heavy. But a, but a cap of maple on the front of the mahogany would give what the kind of the best of both worlds: uh, the resonance, but also some brightness, because you didn't want a guitar that was too muddy. Muddiness is a thing we're always fighting in rock music. Because if you put a bunch of instruments all into one frequency range and everybody's going bah, 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 kind of in the range of the vocal, it just sounds like garbage. You want things to be up high. You want things to be down low. 
Is this the kind of thing that even somebody without the best ear could tell? You know, do you have to be a connoisseur to be like, uh, ah, you can really hear the brightness of the tone there? Or, or you know, would most listeners not even be able to hear the difference between a maho- the mahogany and the maple? What happens to the lay listener when you listen to a song is that you're unsatisfied by it and you don't know why. Hmm. And what causes that dissatisfaction is one of a thousand things. If the drummer and the bass player aren't synced up, you don't like it. Your, your, your body doesn't move naturally to it. If the instruments are out of tune with one another. But this type of thing, the um, spectrum of sound and how you want to build a song from the lowest sound, which is the kick drum and the lowest notes of the bass guitar. The timbre? Can we say timbre? Let's I, say timbre. I just like saying the word timbre. All the way up to the highest sound, which are the, the very highest range of the cymbals, uh, the tambourines. You, you try and fit these different instruments into this uh, layer cake. And in the middle, you leave a lot of space for the vocal range. But unfortunately, the vocal range is also the range of a it's lot of guitar, where the guitar right? is. So you compensate for that by making the guitar brighter in tone. And if the thing is brighter, you can also turn the volume of it down and it's still audible. So that's how you hear guitar parts in songs that are kind of like ding, 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 ding. And you're not, it's not like overwhelming, but it's very present in the mix because of this trebly tone. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So the Gibson Les Paul is a moderate success, and they keep kind of tinkering with the formula. They put one out called the Custom, which is black in color, which has gold pickups. That's very beautiful. We're kind of into the mid-50s at this point. We're in the so, mid-50s. So rock is actually starting. Um, but rock music is a people's music, and they're using a lot of Fender guitars. Uh, Gibson keeps kind of trying to explore how to popularize their instrument. They, they, they stop painting them gold, and they paint instead, and this is in 1958, halfway through 1958, they start painting them in a sunburst which is sort of gold, uh, like natural paint in the middle where you can see the wood through the varnish and then kind of out to a red, it kind of fades out to red along the edges of the guitar. It's funny that guitars are getting more beautiful at the same time as fewer people are seeing them. You know, music is becoming something, guitar music has become something you listen to on the radio, not something you go down to a, to a watering hole to see played. But the instruments are lovely. Well, but this is the dawn of the era of television. Ah, that's true. And in fact, there was a finish that the Gibson Company used called TV Yellow. <laughs> um, if, you, if you painted a guitar white and put it on television, the white balance would, uh, and we've all seen something white on an old-fashioned television. It, like Pat Boone? 
uh, <laughs> like pretty much everything on old fashioned television. <laughs> yeah. But somebody in a white shirt would cause it, that flare. Right. It extends beyond the borders of Pat Boone's skin and and turns into like a it 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 right. uh, it flares. Whereas if you if you paint a guitar a kind of light yellow, it reads on black and white TV as white. So my teeth would look very white if I was on TV in the 50s. My teeth are always going to look a little weird uh, because I sharpened them during my cosplay years, turned them into wolf teeth. I missed my chance to have really white looking teeth if I just lived in the black and white era. But the, the, the rise of television played a major role in the guitar culture because it introduced the idea that a good, that a musician was cool looking and that that played a big part in how you, in, you, you received their music. Like the Beatles were as renowned for their haircuts as they were for their, their tunes. Isn't that funny? Like all the, all the people railing against the counterculture had not heard the songs. They were just like, look at their hair. Yeah. That's not even a haircut. We can't let them get away with this. And there's also the ma- the manner in which you play electric guitar, you know, lends itself to TV as well. I mean, I don't know how early people realized the phallic connotations of a guitar, but it seems a little more direct with a solid body thing you're holding than a jazz guy sitting in a chair, right? It does, but also four people can make the music of 25 people if you have amplified instruments. Yeah. So uh, all of a sudden, instead of looking at a, a, a wide shot of the Lawrence Welk Orchestra where you can kind of not distinguish any individual musician. The celebrity is the band leader. I right. love Jimmy Dorsey. Yeah, yeah he, he's going to play for like 40 seconds. <laughs> but now, like, you've got Elvis in the front and Scotty Moore to his left. And, you know, like, it's there's four people up there and they're making all this racket. Right. And uh, so you can know everybody's names. It becomes a, a personality cult. And that was, that was part of the boom of rock and roll too, as anybody could buy a guitar and then you could tune in your TV and see these cool, cool cats. Anyway, Gibson made the Les Paul standard for just three years. And this is the Les Paul after they stopped painting it gold and they started putting a clear finish on it, a sunburst finish. And they realized that in order to have the guitar look good, if you were painting it, you could put an unmatched top two different pieces of maple on there and paint it gold or black. But if you were going to have it where the finish was see-through and you could you could see the grain of the wood, the top had to be matched. It had to be book matched, the two sides of it. And that lent itself to a lot of kind of artistry because you'd find this, these beautiful pieces of maple and put them together and laminate it. And you could see all the grain and all the, what, what we would call the flame of the maple, which is the characteristic of the wood as, as it, receives the varnish. This is exciting for our listeners, 40 minutes in, or at least we've gotten to the actual title of the show. Here it is, the 59 Les Paul Standard. 1959 was the apogee of this particular moment in guitar making. The 58s often had very plain tops. By 59, they'd figured out how to make those how to make the wood, to pick beautiful wood for the tops of these guitars. So it's not just the varnish, they're also picking the grain better. Right. Um, and by 1960, the, they had kind of thinned the neck down a little bit to make it easier to play, but that was enough of a change that mm. it felt like a maybe an evolution in the wrong direction. So there's one year of overlap between the nice bodies and the nice necks. And what Gibson was doing that Fender wasn't was they had worked with a man named Seth Lover to develop a humbucking pickup. And the problem with electric guitar pickups is that they're vulnerable to 60 cycle hum, which is a hum within the electric 
circuit that well, even the, if you're the amp pick it up. Or? Yeah, the amp picks it up. And so even if the strings aren't making any noise, the pickup and amp cycle creates this and it's not feedback, it's 60 cycle hum. Seth Lover realized that if you took two coils and electrically inverted them so that they were out of phase with one another, it would still pick up the tone of the strings, but it would can't the, the out of phaseness would cancel out the hum. Oh, because they're they're going in different directions. And so you could turn the guitar louder, you could turn it up louder, turn the amp up louder without having this annoying hum. Does that lead to artistic change in the music? Was rock and roll a little more sedate when you couldn't turn up your guitar? Well, or you just couldn't put as much gain into it. So, you know, so your guitar tones were very clean and plinky and strummy. Uh. As the humbucker enabled you to get louder, you could also get loud enough to create distortion that was pleasing and not just like ugly distortion, but you know, it was, and it was a fatter sound. It didn't have to be so clean. So most of the, the effects we associate with, uh, you know, electric guitar solo today would not have been possible without the humbucking pickup. Right. Well, unfortunately for Gibson, these innovations in their time did not sell. Uh, uh the Les Paul standard was not a commercial success. People were moving away from jazz music and the Les Pauls or the, the, the Gibson company was not perceived as hip. These were like big fat guitars for, for people making bebop music. It was still the jazz guitar. And so they only made Les Pauls for, they only made these Les Paul standards for three years, 58, 59, and 60. Do we know how many more or less? Um, during the whole run they made less than 1400. Oh, wow. Uh, and of the 59s, I think they only made 600. And I think the, the, it's a noble number. They made 643, 1959 Les Paul standard. So this is kind of getting into Stradivarius range where it's such a rare thing that we know where all the surviving ones are. And, and I assume there's a collector's market. Well, there's a reason for that. And then, so they stopped making them and they, they, uh, they made a new guitar, which they called the Les Paul. Uh, starting in 1961. And it's a guitar we now think of as the SG. It's the guitar made famous by Angus Young of ACDC. It's a very different looking guitar. It's a thinner, lighter guitar. It's more space age and rock and roll looking. And it took off. It was an interesting guitar. It was a useful guitar. But sometime in the mid sixties, after Les Paul's, after the original Les Paul standard had just sort of uh, faded into obscurity, a person, none other than Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones found a Les Paul in a music shop in London and it was affordable and Keith was... Were the Rolling Stones just starting out or is he, or is he a well-known musician looking for a new act? No, they were just, they were just getting going. They're the just art school kids. Yeah, the Beatles were very, made their guitars very famous. They had Gretsch's and Rickenbackers and Paul McCartney played a Hofner, Hofner bass. Yep. And uh, those guitars like Gretsch's and Rick, Rickenbackers sound very European, those names, because they're very German names although they were American guitar companies. But it sounded to, to American kids who were loving the Beatles. Uh, they sounded exotic. They sounded exotic. Uh, and so those guitar companies traded on the popularity they of the prospered. Beatles. 
But Keith Richards found this 59 Les Paul in a, in a music shop and bought it and played it in their early days. And he was on television playing this Les Paul. And it stood out, and in, in, in particular because it wasn't available anymore. It wasn't, they weren't being made. And Keith was very generous with his instruments. He wasn't somebody that hoarded. And so when he was back in England... And his drugs, probably. He, he hoarded his drugs. But he lent out his guitar. He would, he would let people play it. And so he let people play it. And the people that he loaned it to were people among whom were Eric Clapton mm. and Jimmy Page and uh, some pretty influential musicians who all fell in love with the guitar. Is there, an, is there a, a feel to playing it as well, or is it, is it entirely sound? Do all guitars feel more or less the same? No, they don't at all. And this 59 Les Paul had a, had a thick, kind of chunky neck that you could really get your hand around. It was a heavier guitar. I love my thick, curvy guitar. Mm. They felt very solid. They're compact body, but kind of thick and solid. That When I was growing up, they were known as heavy guitars. Mm -hmm. Um, this was before Keith Richards body had wasted away so that he did not have the, the density to actually pick up a heavy guitar. Well, if you look at a, at a Les Paul on Jimmy Page, who's not a tall guy, um, they, it seems like a really big guitar on him. Giant thing. On me, it looks like a belt buckle. So these kind of famous characters, most of the big, big guitar players of the sixties ended up with a. Gibson Les Paul at some point or another, Peter Green of Fleetwood Mac, Jimmy Page, uh, most of the blues breaker types. I mean, the, really the only guitar player of the 60s that didn't have a 59 Les Paul was Jimi Hendrix, who inexplicably didn't fall for the hype. He, he was famous for his Stratocaster. And, uh, you know, this is not the kind of thing their fans could go down to a guitar store and find, you right? Could. You could. Oh, really? I mean, these were still for sale. You could Not for sale, but you could find them at pawn shops. You could find them under your dad's bed. And that was part of their mystique. There, was, there were only 640 of these. And so there, there became a market within rock guitar players for 59 Les Pauls. And a lot of the surviving guitars have been owned at various times by multiple famous guitarists. So there's a, got there, a provenance. Yeah. There's a 59 Les Paul that was owned by Joe Perry of Aerosmith. Mm -hmm. He sold it when he was down on his luck, uh, during his drug years. The pre like what, like pre walk this way or between walk this way. And, B uh, before the run DMC walk right. this way. Uh, and it ended up being owned by slash. And ah. then Slash became friends with Joe Perry after Slash got famous and gave it back to Joe as a 50th birthday. The funny thing is guitarists do this with their girlfriends as well. That's true. Uh, and, and very famously, Eric Clapton <laughs> and George Harrison traded a wife. But not a guitar. Well, Eric Clapton did give George Harrison a, a very famous Les Paul. Although I hope that 59. wasn't the deal. Like, I, I can have a, yeah, I'll take Patty for, for this guitar <laughs> and a player to be named later. There's a, the, the famous Les Paul that was owned by Peter Green, uh, later was owned by the guitar player for Thin Lizzy. And then it was recently bought by Kirk Hammett of Metallica for $2 million. Okay. That was going to be my next question. So you have a bunch of guitars here in the bunker. You do not have a 59 Les Paul standard, I assume. No, because by 1968, Gibson realized that they needed to start ma making this guitar again. It mm -hmm. had become a fetish item. And why were they not? 
why why weren't they yeah, making well, it? Why why is it pawn shops making all the money here? So they start they started making them in '68, and they make them now to this day. Gibson along the way realized that the '59 Les Paul had become such a talisman that they needed to just start making recreations of it. And as we sit right now, the 1959 Les Paul recreation is one of their biggest sellers. They're charging four thousand dollars for a for an imitation 1959. And Les if, Paul. if you've played one of these replicas, like, do people say it's close? Like, is it is it what's different? What do you get by actually paying two million dollars for uh, oh for the Thin Lizzy guys guitar? At that at the point at which you're paying two million dollars, it's just that it's a talisman. It's rock history. You can buy a 59 Les Paul now for the, I think on the secondary market for about $250,000. There are these 600 of them. They're not all accounted for about half, maybe 60% of the 59 Les Pauls are accounted for. There are plenty of, some may have been destroyed, but some are presumably still in attic somewhere, somewhere in an attic. We're not that far away from 1959 that there aren't examples where some kid bought one and then went to Vietnam and was killed and his parents left his room untouched. You know, there's still examples of guitars reappearing where somebody just pulls it out from under their, their grandfather's bed and takes it down to a shop and says, what's this worth? And hopefully the guy says, uh, this is fine. I'll give you 500 bucks. Yeah, I'll give you $2,500. And, uh, and I've held a few actual 1959 Les Pauls. There was a while there where there was it was crazy speculation that they were going to all be worth a half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. The market kind of flattened out. Uh, but that guitar became what we now think of as the holy grail of guitars. And it might have been the Fender Telecaster if they hadn't just kept making Telecasters just perfectly the entire time. There wasn't this uh, false scarcity that happened with the Les Paul where Gibson decided, oh, it's not selling. We're going to go a different direction. And then it became through the magic of Keith Richards and his uh, magic hand became an item that 60s rock musicians really needed to have. And and believe me, they are phenomenal instruments. But the magic is disproportionate to the actual quality? No, I think that probably a 59 Les Paul does sound different and better than almost any, uh, in terms of making the sound of a 59 Les Paul. I mean, if you're making country Western music, it's not the right guitar for you. But in terms of the the magic tone, the warmth, the sustain, the fatness, the unquantifiable like emotion that is in an electric guitar, I think the 59 Les Paul is probably an unmatched peak. That concludes the 59 Les Paul Standard, entry number 466.PS3302, certificate number 30784, in the omnibus. We certainly hope that social media does not exist in your era. Social media is an area where we need some artificially induced scarcity, I believe, to make it seem a little cooler. Yeah, there's no 59 Les Paul of social media, though. There's not one tweet that there's just not enough of. In our day, though, you could find John and me under our respective names at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on Twitter. The show was at Omnibus Project, not just on Twitter, but all over 
the social media spectrum, epidemic, whatever you want to say. <laughs> uh, John was also at John Roderick on Instagram. We could be emailed for very important communication at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com so that we could open our work to the scrutiny of our peers. There was also a fan group called Futurelings, which you could find on Facebook. And weren't we giving a mailing address? Because oh. you, you wanted people to send us things. Yeah. If yeah, you, give us a, give the mailing address. If your son never came back from Vietnam, please send John his 59 Les Paul Standard at Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Uh, listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we're listening still to the last few recordings of actual instruments making cool rock and roll before everything just became bots selling you tampons. That's actually what I was hoping rock would become. That's what Elvis would have wanted. Bots selling tampons. Uh, We hope and pray that the catastrophe of that never comes. The blood wave. (laughs) That self-driving cars never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. If Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.